everybody, it is Sunday, February 10th, 2019, and you are listening to a very late episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Isleyke, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. Well, hey guys, uh, we missed the boat on Friday, again, due to some scheduling conflicts and some other things coming up in my life. So we're here on a Sunday to talk about a little bit of car news, uh, more specifically talk about the Chicago Auto Show and kind of uh, run down some of the interesting things that were announced uh, down in the windy, windy city after a very snowy week here in the Midwest. Uh, in the car culture segment, uh, kind of a tie-in to the Chicago Auto Show uh, part, just reminiscing a little bit about the MX-5 Miata. Uh, the car is 30 years old, which is crazy to think about. Some highlights, some lowlights on the car, uh, some general thoughts on where that car may or may not be going in the very near future. And then last up, a car that's on my mind, something that's been exclusively on my mind for the past couple of days, and it's the Chevy Tracker, specifically the late model Chevy Tracker. Uh, a lot of weird things going on when it comes to crossovers, SUVs, what's four-wheel drive capable and what's not. Uh, this thing was a weird vehicle at the time, and it's still a weird vehicle when you start to think about it today. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we get to the main part of the show, this is the part where I remind you that, uh, hey, we publish this podcast on a wide variety of platforms, including uh, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. So if it's a toaster that can listen to podcasts, there's a good chance you can get it there for free. Uh, make sure that if you are listening, you are subscribed, you uh, share it with your friends, and if they ask for ratings on that uh, specific service, uh, if you give us that, that'd be super great. It lets us get uh, more visible to more people out there. I try to do these episodes twice a week, usually on Monday or Tuesday, with a short uh, scrap story episode where I just kind of talk about a general car topic that's of interest to me at the moment, and then on Fridays, the big news and whatever else episodes uh, to finish off the week. We do another version of this uh, podcast also called the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide, uh, where we break down a segment of vehicles into what I believe are the top three options and then give you a fourth option for flavor. Uh, that fourth option might not always be the best one, but hey, it's at the very least worth considering. Uh, because we've been so weird about scheduling, and I've talked about in other episodes, we are going to do a car buyers episode uh, later today talking about mid-size SUVs, not three-row mid-size SUVs, uh, but uh, mid-size SUVs, two-row ones, a little more on the sporty luxurious end of things. So with all that in mind, guys, after the bump, we'll talk about the 2019 Chicago Auto Show. While down in the Windy City, the 2019 Chicago Auto Show kind of started and just happened, and it was like a weird way that things got uh, announced and wrapped up uh, this week. Now, of course, it didn't help that we had a huge snowstorm come through the Great Lakes area this previous week. Uh, and, you know, right now it's still kind of in that same boat. Um, but there were a few cool things announced. So, uh, kind of based on what uh, was talked about on Autoblog, Jalapnik, uh, a few other YouTube channels. We'll just kind of run down some of the things that I think were relatively interesting from the Chicago Auto Show. Uh, the big announcement, of course, is the 2019 uh, Subaru Legacy, or is it technically the 2020? 
20. It's kind of confusing. Nevertheless, we've got a new legacy coming. Uh, this new legacy is a step up in terms of performance. It's a step up in terms of interior appointments and technology. Um, but really, you know, Subaru's not straying too far from what has made it such a popular brand in the past few years. Now, longtime legacy fans, I think, weren't exactly in love with the current car. Um, the car got much larger, uh, suspension tuning got much softer, performance levels dropped dramatically after they dropped the uh, turbocharged engine, and this new Legacy is seeking to change a lot of what had happened. Subaru is saying that the new structure of the car is 70% stiffer, which is going to make it uh, ride and handle much better and give it a much more sporting uh credential or capability uh, to the overall vehicle. Uh, they are keeping the standard two and a half liter inline four as uh, an available engine on many of the trim levels, uh, but there will be a new 2.4 liter turbocharged engine taken from the large Ascent SUV that's going to be made available. Now, both of those engines can only be matched to a CVT automatic. No manual transmissions again in this legacy. Uh, but, you know, Subaru knows which side of the bread it's buttered on. People want a car that is safe, that is all-weather capable, and is large enough to comfortably sit uh, four or five individuals. And that's really about it. Uh, but the XT model is back, and that is at least somewhat exciting for me. Uh, you know, I don't think this thing's going to start running circles around the old XTs from the mid-late aughts, uh, but, you know, replacing that big flat 6 with that new turbocharged 4, I think is going to be a pretty smart choice in terms of where the segment is going. Uh, Subaru also rolled out a new infotainment system. Uh, it is a large 11.7-inch screen that is mounted vertically in the dash. Think what Tesla has or what Volvo has or anything like that. Uh, it runs Apple, or, or excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and it, uh, you know, it, it does all the things. All the things are there. There's the EyeSight uh, safety system uh, that is, I think, now standard on all versions of the Subaru Legacy, which is pretty good. And it is a pretty well-regarded system. Uh, so if people who are safety conscious when it comes to new vehicles, I think, you know, you've got a very solid choice here. Uh, Style-wise, you know, I, it's an evolution of what we currently have. I think the car is good looking. I think it's a car that is very much dependent on the color choices that are being made. But, you know, sitting it next to a current car, I don't think a lot of people would be able to tell the difference. And I don't think that is a very good choice on behalf of Subaru. But hey, when you're building you know, a bazillion of these and selling a bazillion of these in the United States and Canada... Uh, you got to be doing something right. And uh, Subaru is saying that uh, alongside the Legacy, they will be announcing the Outback very soon. More than likely, that will be in New York in the next few weeks. Um, but the this is a good car. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to describe it. It might not sound that I'm very excited about the new Legacy. I'm excited that it's going to be able to take on the Camry and the Accord and really the Nissan Altima in a pretty interesting way. So, I mean... Subaru fans rejoice. The legacy seems to be good again, but it's not exactly the most exciting car ever to come out of the Detroit, or excuse me, the Chicago Auto Show. Now, one other interesting thing that uh, did come from a Japanese brand, it is the Toyota RAV4 TRD 
Sport, I think Sport is still on the back of that name. Uh, more or less, this new RAV4 trim is taking off from where the Adventure model uh, leaves off. The Adventure model, I think, kicks around out the door somewhere around thirty-three dollars or $34,000. Uh, adds a little bit more of a robust tuning element uh, to the all-wheel drive system, gives it some much more credible uh, off-road tires, body cladding, interior styling, and a little bit more. Um, this TRD model uh, changes the suspension bits out, uh, gives it a much stiffer, or maybe not necessarily stiffer, but uh, speed off-road tuned suspension is the way it was kind of described. So uh, not quite like a desert racer, like a Ford Raptor, um, but it is meant to be able to travel down uh, dirt, rutted roads, things like that at a much higher speed compared to the Adventure model uh, without damaging the vehicle. And they say that it's going to improve the overall ride quality of the car out on the highway. Um, it does come with much more capable off-road tires as well. Um, no real other major changes to the vehicle other than some special badging um, and a few other slight tune adjustments. Um, no real announcement on pricing either. I'm willing to bet that if the Adventure model starts around $33,000, uh, this one's probably going to kick out the door somewhere closer to forty. And at least for a front-wheel drive biased crossover, I begin to feel that that is getting pretty expensive for a car that is that size. And while we're on the subject of the RAV4 for just a moment, uh, I did spend some time sitting inside of one recently at the local auto show, and one of my uh, significant other's biggest complaints on that car is the lack of headroom sitting in the passenger seat. The passenger seats do not uh, manually adjust to a lower ride height, and as much as I was able to make my position much more comfortable as a tall individual in the driver's seat, uh, for her, uh, at least with the sunroof, it is like a no-go no for her. So, weird. Anyway, uh, but still, curiosity here is pretty high on this crossover. Um, the new RAV4 looks fantastic especially in the adventure trim um, you know adding that little bit more of an off-road capability to it i think is a smart choice now whether or not you would buy a rav4 adventure versus say a compass trailhawk or a cherokee trailhawk i think really kind of depends on where your brand uh, loyalty lies. You know, the Toyota will likely be a little more fuel efficient. The Toyota will likely be a little more reliable. Uh, but for pushing $40,000, you know, I think a Cherokee with the V6 and the Trailhawk trim would be a little bit more appealing to me dollar for dollar, even if there is some penalty when it comes to fuel economy. So, uh, if you're curious at all, I think Toyota's got a big splash page up on their website, uh, but it's nothing too, too crazy um, overall. Now, there is a big uh, pushing match going on right now among the American automakers on who builds the biggest, toughest, heavy-duty pickup truck. Uh, I guess in the flesh, we got to see the updated Ford Super Duty pickup truck, with which I don't really know a whole lot of specifics about. It sounds like there's a new 7.5 liter V8, something along those lines. It's a 7-plus liter V8 uh, that they're working on for this new pickup truck. GM announced a new 6.6 liter V8 for their pickup trucks lines. Uh, GM hit the floor saying that they have the highest towing capacity of any heavy-duty pickup truck at up to 35,500 pounds, uh, which is pretty crazy. That beats the 
previously announced Ram uh, with the turbo diesel with a thousand foot pound of torque. They announced, I think, at 35,100 uh, pounds. Uh, this pissing match between all of these different manufacturers is crazy. Um, I think someone on I think it was Jalapnik. I may have talked about this in a previous announcement or episode about how uh, these trucks are getting to be borderline semi-truck capable in terms of what they are able to tow, haul, and whatever else. And that is pretty insane when you start to think of it. Uh, I would be really curious to see what these trucks look like in the next generation and really curious to see if these trucks even can exist in the next 15 years or so because... In terms of fuel economy, in terms of performance and things like that, these trucks don't have to be rated the way other ones do. And uh, yes, they do cater to a very specific crowd of people, um, but whether or not it's going to be in companies' best interest to build these kinds of vehicles, I think will really be up in the air in the not-too-distant future. Sticking on the pickup truck game for a moment as well, uh, Ram did announce a new tailgate configuration uh, for the Ram pickup trucks to take on uh, the tailgate concept that's on the back end of the GMC Sierra. Uh, if you haven't seen the GMC Sierra tailgate, it's a three-in-one tailgate where it can fold up and down like a regular tailgate. Uh, there is a smaller tailgate that can open uh, within that, and then an even smaller one that flips out of that smaller one weird to say it that way, uh, that eventually you can like basically fold the tailgate down to make a like step system on the back of your truck, or you can make it so you can get into the back of the truck more easily to grab things, or fold it in a way to hold longer pieces of cargo more efficiently. It's a pretty smart way to do things. It's also a very expensive tailgate, I'd be willing to bet. Uh, Ram's answer to this instead of having one that kind of uh, continually folds down into one direction kind of takes a middle ground between what Honda offers on the Ridgeline and what GMC offers excuse me on the Ram or excuse me on the Sierra 1500 uh, the new Ram tailgate actually opens like a double dutch door split in half um, I believe it can also open fully wide across the bed like the Ridgeline um, and then do some other trickery fold down whatever type things uh, it's interesting to see whose idea is going to win out. I think in terms of true practicality, I, I'm a little more aligned with what GMC is doing with the Sierra. Uh, but, you know, Ram, they, they know what they're doing. They've got the pickup truck formula uh, on point right now. I will still wholeheartedly say that if I were to go out and buy a full-size pickup truck tomorrow, there's a good chance it would be a Ram 1500. Uh, the Sierra would probably be my second choice. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a smart tailgate design it's not the greatest but it's interesting nevertheless now uh in terms of the final thing to talk about here i think it is the 30th anniversary uh mx5 miata um crazy to think that this car has been out for 30 years the car was announced in chicago in 1989 and went on sale shortly thereafter uh, mazda has been known to do special edition mx5s at the chicago auto show many many times and this one you know really isn't completely unlike what they've done in the past uh it's special badging it's a special color um with a special accessory uh colors that go with it uh the two cars that were shown off at the show were a convertible and a rf hardtop a retractable folding hardtop uh model uh there were these 
like bright electric orange colors uh, with black interior, black wheels. Um, it looks really, really good. Uh, kudos to Mazda to getting the colors right. Um, to Mazda aficionados, it reminds me a lot of the orange color that used to be back on the old uh, Mazda Speed Protégé from back in the early mid-aughts. Uh, it's a really cool color and I'm really excited to see it going. But if you wanted to buy one, it is too late. Mazda sold out every single model almost instantly after announcing it. Uh, these collector cars always go quick and uh, it shouldn't be a huge surprise that that was the case. Uh, but all in all, for what we saw at the Chicago Auto Show, well, that's about it. Uh, really, these auto shows are kind of on the... Last leg, I think, of things that are going on uh, as we wrap up this decade. Um, the New York Auto Show and the Geneva Auto Shows are the next two to come up uh, a little bit later in the spring. Hopefully we get some really cool vehicle announcements from there. Uh, hard to say what we're expecting uh, going forward at the moment, but... All in all, you know, hey, if you're based here in the Midwest, you know, if you're really close to the Chicago Auto Show, I think it might be worth visiting uh, just to see the vehicle displays and the extra space that they have there uh, really makes uh, these that show worth visiting, I would say, compared to Detroit. Uh, but uh, if you're looking to see the newest of new vehicles, uh, I don't think you're going to really be missing all of that much. So... 2019 Chicago Auto Show, just like the Detroit Auto Show, a modest success, uh, but really nothing too great of note to hang on uh, heading into the rest of the year. So speaking of that 30th anniversary Mazda MX-5 Miata, uh, it's a good time, I think, to kind of look back on the history of the MX-5. Uh, 30 years is crazy. Myself only being two years older than the MX-5 itself, uh, it's pretty insane to think that this car has been around nearly as long as I have, and uh, what a car it is. Uh, if you've never had a chance to drive an MX-5, ride an MX-5, uh, track one down. This is one of the best-selling convertible sports cars ever sold in the history of this planet. Uh, you could probably lift up a rock in the woods somewhere outside and find uh, one under there. Uh, the other good thing about the MX-5, of course, is that they are very cheap to buy. They're very cheap to run um, and really the only ones that are going to get prohibitively expensive are going to be special edition models uh, special equipment models things like the Mazda Speed Miatas uh, you know some of the retractable folding hardtop ones uh, some of the collector's edition ones but really you know if you're just a geek off the street and you see a used one on the side of the road with the 1.6 liter four-cylinder the five-speed manual the manual folding hardtop I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to spend more than three to four thousand dollars for a fairly decent condition one. And that's really what makes the car so great is that you can buy one in decent shape, bang on it really hard, driving it a little too quick, a little too hard, and replace all the bits and bobs on it and resell it for near enough the same amount of money that you spent for it. Uh, it's a fantastic deal. Thinking back to some of the latest and greatest models that uh, stand out to me and my brain, uh, I think. For me personally, the cream of the crop is the 1997 uh, M edition Miata. Now, I am a little biased because my aunt had one uh, back in the late 90s into the early aughts. The 97, of course, was the final year for the original NA Miata that dated back to 1989. Uh, the M edition came with uh, the larger 1.8 liter four-cylinder engine. 
a five-speed manual uh, British racing green exterior paint uh, with a tan leather interior. It also had some uh, really nice wood trim on the dashboard. Uh, I believe the wheel uh, shift knob and uh, emergency brake also had special wood accents as well. Uh, the car just really popped in a way that a lot of other Miatas didn't, uh, especially compared to other special edition ones that had come out previous to that. Uh, but it just... A beautiful car. The color combo that looked the way that Miatas, at least in my brain, should always look. Uh, M editions are a little bit harder to come by these days. I haven't checked on pricing for those, uh, but typically they hold their value pretty well, and in normal cases they were usually pretty well taken care of. Uh, but I did a little quick dive through some uh, early MX-5 pricing today. You know, a lot of examples Oddly enough, all around the Chicagoland area for me uh, came up for right around, you know, four to six grand for pretty well taken care of, uh, less than 150,000 miles on them. Uh, now, of course, your mileage may vary where you live. Uh, you can sometimes find them here in Michigan for as much as $10,000 for early NA models that have been really well kept. Uh, I remember driving my first uh, N.A. Mazda Miata back in the early 20-teens. It must have been around 2012-ish, 2013-ish. Um, went on down to the local Ford dealer. They had a trade uh, that came in on a 94 N.A. Miata, which I think had the 1.6 liter engine, so the smaller, lower output one. Uh, it was black on black. It looked great. Uh, it did not have the hard top available for it, uh, but I took it out for a drive. It is one of the most fun things I've ever driven. It's one of the most easy to drive cars I've ever driven. Like you just hop in, all the switches are this tactile mechanical feel. Uh, the transmission, the clutch work together in a harmonious way that just really exceeds expectations. Like I know a lot of people bloviate about how great this car is, but it's true. The first generation Miata is arguably one of the best driving experiences anybody can have. It's one of the only cars that just about anyone can get in and really get an idea for what the car's limits are, but also what your limits are as a driver. Um, so if you ever get a chance to drive a first generation Miata, you know, take it by the reins and go for it. Now where things get kind of weird with the Miata are the models that came after the NB, the NC, and where we are today, the ND Miata, uh, really kind of depends on what your perception of what a Miata should or should not be. Uh, if the original was meant to be a take on classic British roadster motoring, uh, the second generation was more of a way to respond to, I, I guess I would say, American demands to the car. Uh, they made the chassis a little bit more stiffer. They added larger displacement engines, uh, give it a little bit more of a robust drivetrain out back. Uh, but really, you know, it was just a little bit of a larger and more comfortable space to sit in. Uh, myself, I fit much more nicely in a NB, second generation Miata, than I do the first generation one. Uh, but it isn't exactly an overnight uh, crazy success out of all things. Uh, what is interesting, of course, for me about the second generation Miata is that just like the first generation one, the longevity of that model was pretty strong coming out in 98. I believe not being replaced until 2007, six or seven, somewhere around there. It was, we were pretty deep into the aughts by the time that car had been replaced. Uh, they did, of course, come out with the Mazda Speed Miata, uh, thus far the only 
Miata specifically that had forced induction uh, available here in the U.S. Uh, it was a low output turbo, but you know it gave it some pretty serious sporting credentials. Had those really slick looking uh, racing heart wheels. It was a package that overall looked really great, and from what I understand, is still a very reliable car even with that forced induction on it. Uh, Miata or at least Mazda and the Miata team, they were really keen to go after the Honda S2000 at the time. And while, you know, the Honda S2000 was a very different kind of sports car, uh, it was a noble effort. And I think, you know, in terms of the kind of driver that normally grabs a Miata compared to an S2000 or a Boxster or a Z4, uh, I think they would have been pretty happy with that one. Uh, but if I could find a uh, Mazda Speed and red with that black leather interior, whew, that would be a pretty smart buy as a collector's item if it's in good shape, I think, in the not-too-distant future. Now, the NB, of course, was followed up by the NC Miata, which was arguably the most radical departure uh, for the car overall. Uh, the NA and the NB were similar in overall size, similar in overall shape, uh, still had a little bit more of a cutesy appearance, uh, but the NC was much more of a car of its time, being of the mid to late aughts, uh, had a much more aggressive uh, face, it had a much more aggressive stance, um, and the car itself, you know, soldiered on for near enough the better part of a decade, uh, it had, a, again, a much larger engine option here in the U.S., I think it was a two liter engines up from the 1.8 liter i might be wrong about that um, but it shared a lot in common with you know the base trim engines in the uh regular mazda 3 if i remember correctly it was the two liter option not the 2.3 i should have done more research for this but the thing with the nc was that it was a wider stanced vehicle uh it was a much heavier car it was a much more comfortable car again especially for american audiences and they did eventually add a retractable hard top option uh for people who wanted a hard top coupe um, you know, whether or not you think the NC is a good Miata, I think really kind of depends on, again, what your definition of Miata should be. If you think it should only be the lightest of lightweight uh, performance roadsters, I don't think the NC is for you. But if you want a very capable chassis that can be modified slightly, that can fit a fairly large American relatively easily, uh, and have some pretty modern technology in it, uh, the NC might be your bag, baby. Uh, I really like the NC. It's not my favorite of the Miatas, um, but it is a pretty good car. Uh, it's been interesting to see where prices have kind of floated around on that. Uh, as the ND turned up, uh, values have really started to fall on the NC. We're not quite to the basement level uh, prices of the NA and NB cars, uh, but we're getting there. And I think, you know, if you, again, are looking for some uh, a sports car that is very capable in the right kind of hands, uh, gives you a little bit more comfort on the road as a day-to-day -day vehicle, I think the NC is a good choice compared to the NA and the NB. Um, and, you know, even compared to the ND, I think there are some upsides uh, to the NC. Um, really, namely, in it's a little more Spartan. It's probably going to last a little longer with some of the technology that's in it. And... Uh, you know, it's still a good car. It, it's still a very good car. Now, speaking of special edition NCs, 
there really weren't as much of the NCs uh, that I can remember off the top of my head. They did some special color additions. Uh, they did some special trims and things like that, but nothing really kind of hits things on the nose. Uh, the only special NC that I can think of that really got my blood going was the, uh, what is it, the Super 20 special edition model that Mazda made for, I think it was SEMA uh, a couple years back. Uh, that one was a supercharged version of the uh, Mazda NC Miata uh, that really just boosted the power. They slammed it to the ground. They put on some super sticky racing tires, really gave it an aggressive suspension tune and made arguably one of the most capable small cars out there that never got sold. Uh, Mazda was on a tear at this point in time, uh, producing wonderful sports cars that nobody could own. And uh, it's a shame that they never got around to making it a production car. I think it would have been a really interesting model to have on hand, uh, especially as we entered into the uh, later part of the 20 teens. Uh, you know, I think the Super 20 was kind of a too little, too late scenario against like the Boxster S, uh, the Honda S2000 before it died, uh, things like that. I, it was just a very cool car. Um, if you ever get a chance to watch the uh, Motor Trend review of the car, they get some great audio off of it. Uh, Carlos Lago really hammers on it. Uh, and that's really the great thing about it. As a, as a production prototype concept whatever uh mazda designed it to be driven and they still drive it and they still use it in a lot of things it was just a great car that just never quite got the wheels to the road and that is really disappointing now where we are today of course is the nd miata uh, the nd miata is a return to the origins of sorts with the car uh, mazda promised that they were going to put the car on a strict diet make it much smaller make it much closer to the original and for the most part they did succeed now this current miata if i remember correctly has been on sale since 2016 I think it was 2016 was the first year for it. Uh, used uh, some carryover parts again from the Mazda 3. Um, it uses some different uh, bits and bobs out of the production uh, warehouse for the Miata. So a lot of the parts, you know, were more of an evolution of what was on the shelf, not necessarily brand new. Um, but in any case, you know, it's much lighter. It's much smaller. It's a much more capable package. Now, the strange thing is about this Miata, at least compared to the NC, uh, the NC was a very stable or stable performance car where, you know, you had to work to really get the back end to kick out. And that was because of the wider stance of the chassis. This one being so much smaller and with the way that Mazda had tuned the suspension in it, uh, they made it a much more unstable one. Uh, so this car likes to drift. It likes to slide. Um, when you get the more performance oriented pack, which I'm totally forgetting the name of the trim level, um, it does kind of button down on the back end of the car make it a little more stable but if you wanted to get the ultimate miata that's on sale today you don't buy it from nissan you head on over to the fiat dealer and you grab the 124 spider abarth uh, that car is near enough the same exact thing underneath as a miata in fact it is the same exact thing underneath uh, the only difference between the two cars is that uh, Fiat supplied it with its 1.6 liter turbocharged engine and it mates it to a six-speed manual transmission from the NC Miata uh, versus the current uh, ND Miata where the highest trim model with the six-speed is an all-new unit that's designed to work with Nis or, excuse me, Mazda's engine. 
Now that Abarth has a much more button-down suspension layout. It's got a little bit wider wheels and tires. Uh, that extra torque from that turbocharged 1.6 liter engine really gives it the punch that the Mazda Miata deserves to have from a stop. Um, and really, you know, Mazda, I, I think, kind of dropped the ball. I don't, I don't want to say they dropped the ball, but they, they didn't deliver on what I think a lot of people wanted, which is a small turbo on that 2-liter or 2.3-liter, or I guess it's now a 2.5-liter engine, to give the car the guts to take on uh, much higher-trimmed cars. But again, that kind of depends on where you want your Miata to be at. If you believe it to be a very light, svelte, uh, you know, performance-oriented roadster uh, that's, you know, it's quick because it's light and because you're carving corners and you're you're keeping it going with momentum versus, you know, an all-out brute with power and, you know, way too much grip and, you know, you got to really work to get the car to do what, what you want to do. You know, it depends on where you're at. I, I think the greatest thing about the Miata is that it gives drivers the chance to see where their limits are, to find out where the limits of that car is, and, you know, give people a tool to achieve sporting or sporting nirvana, you know, as it were. You know, like I said, if you can buy, go, you can go out today, buy a Miata for $4,000, drive the wheels off it, and learn more in that afternoon of driving than your entire life driving a car. And I think that's just the purity the simplicity of the car, it's what makes it so beautiful, uh, and it's what makes it so exciting that this car has been around for 30 years, and really, in general, so shows no signs of going away. It is still the top-selling roadster on sale in the United States. It is the top-selling convertible worldwide. Uh, Mazda basically has the convertible market to themselves uh, at their price point. Uh, so, you know, where's my where's a beer to say cheers to another 30 years of the Mazda Miata, and hopefully we get some more sporty, some more interesting models again in the very near future. So last up, a car that's on my mind, and really it's been on my mind specifically the, for the past couple of days. Uh, it's the second generation Chevrolet Tracker. Now, uh, I was driving to work in Holland the other day, and I came up behind one, and I hadn't seen one of these trackers in a while. Uh, many of the ones that were sold here in the Midwest have either rusted to pieces or were beat to hell in a way where they never really emerged from the late aughts heading into the early 20-teens. Uh, this one seemed to be meticulously maintained, uh, perhaps aside from a cracked front windshield, uh, but the paint was pristine, no rust, um, no major uh, degradation to the car whatsoever, and uh, I was very impressed, and of course that meant that as soon as I got to a uh, safe stop at work, I did as much research about the car as I could. Uh, apparently, these cars are pretty well-liked in the off-road community, uh, and that mainly stems from the fact that GM kept these pretty truck-like, despite having civilized them quite a bit. Now, in 99 to 2004, for the quote-unquote nice ones, um, GM, you know, extended the back of the vehicle a little bit further, giving the rear seat occupants a little bit more space. Uh, they added a different steering system. I think it's a rack and pinion setup like a car has uh, that gave it a little bit more of a uh, normal 
steering effort uh, to go around corners and to make it so these things didn't roll over like crazy uh, tippy-top cars uh, like they had in the past. Uh, they gave it a much larger engine with the 2.5 liter V6 um, that Suzuki had designed and built for it. Uh, really, it just became a much more civilized vehicle compared to what uh, had come before it. Now, the crazy thing is that, you know, it's a body-on-frame car. It rides like a pickup truck underneath because it is a pickup truck underneath. Uh, it's got a two-speed transfer case. And, you know, in the kind of inclement weather that we've had over the past week or so here in Michigan, something like this would be relatively unstoppable. And by that I mean it's not super heavy, so you could get some presumably decent braking distances out of it with the right kind of tires. Uh, it's got a very capable four-wheel drive system to get you out of a, uh, you know, a rough four-way stop or anything like that uh, could probably help tow your neighbors out of their uh, snow banks and stuff like that in the, your neighborhood. And really, these things can be had in pretty decent condition for well under $5,000. Um, now, super well-kept models with, you know, only like 110,000 miles on them are going to run between five and six grand. Uh, but, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill normal ones, much, much less than that. And so I did a little search on eBay earlier today just to see where many of these models are surviving. And of course, it's in places where snow and ice typically aren't a thing like it is here in the Midwest. Uh, out west, like New Mexico, California, Nevada, uh, Texas, these things are all over. Out on the East Coast, it sounds like these were a very popular crossover to have at the time. Um, it's just an interesting thing. And it's really also interesting to think about the tracker and the way that things were beginning to shape up in the uh, early aughts uh, as this thing was beginning to go away. Uh, this was based on a chassis that had been around for quite some time. Um, this, of course, is the chassis that the new Jimny uh, over in Europe and in Asia is replacing right now, which is crazy to think about. Uh, but uh, it's on a chassis that was very old. It had an engine that was very old. It had transmissions and other bits that were very old. Um, and so you kind of had three main competitors of sorts to it. You had the Jeep uh, Cherokee XJ, which was admittedly a little bit larger, um, but it was a similar body-on-frame, uh, two-speed transfer case, uh, a little bit more off-road performance-oriented vehicle. You had the Honda CRV that was a little bit more of a soft rotor type thing um, that, you know, really had some off-road capability but couldn't go quite as far as the tracker but would get the job done in most situations. Uh, and then you had something like the Chevy Equinox that came not too long after this. Uh, the Equinox was basically a car underneath, uh, but it had so much more interior space, it had so much more refinement, uh, that the tracker just kind of was a an in-betweener in a time where things were really speeding up and GM, and more specifically Suzuki, just didn't have the time to address it. Uh, and you look at something like the uh, Grand Vitara that eventually replaced uh, this model in the Suzuki and GM lineup, and it really became evident that Suzuki didn't know what they were doing, and GM, even more so, didn't really have a grasp on what they were doing. And uh, it was a big mess. And, you know, there's a part of me, of course, that goes, this is something like what the new Blazer should be. Or uh, if GM's going to end up doing a new Trailblazer like they're talking about, uh, this is what that should be. It should be some kind of rough-and-tumble, uh, body-on-frame, four-wheel-drive vehicle. Um, and, you know, I think to this day... 
I would still say the best option that GM has uh, in order to slot into the segment to take on Jeep, uh, to take on Ford with the new Bronco and Bronco 2, uh, to take on, you know, a lot of other weird segments that are growing in this crossover SUV range is to grab that Suzuki Jimny from Europe, from Asia, and bring it over here to the U.S. Uh, because if you haven't checked out the Jimny, it is one of the most interesting cars on sale today. It is a box that somewhat seats four people. Uh, it's got a little tiny turbocharged engine under the hood, but it gets like 30-whatever miles per gallon, and it can dig itself out of holes in a way that a lot of other larger SUVs can't. And uh, I think it's time that we revisit this idea. Somebody at GM needs to make the call to Suzuki and go, yo, can we get these federalized to the U.S.? Because uh, I think this would be a pretty good choice, dude. So we'll see if that ever ends up happening. But if you haven't had a chance, keep an eye out for the Chevy Tracker. Let me know if you see one driving out by you. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at YSSMAN or leave me a voicemail here at the podcast at uh, anchor.fm slash YSSMAN. I'd really appreciate it. Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Eiseldike, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash YSSMAN. You can follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash YSSMAN, or give us a subscribe at places like Apple iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and so much more. I really appreciate you guys uh, continuing to help this podcast grow. Um, it has been really great uh, to see the play counts tick up significantly in the past uh, few weeks. Uh, general stuff that's going on right now. Well, hey guys, uh, as promised, we're going to do the mid-size crossover episode of the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide. Uh, I've got some thoughts. It's a weird segment. There are some things to consider, including a vehicle that I have a very love-hate relationship with, which I think I'm going to talk about at length in that episode. Uh, so buckle up, bros and sisters. Ugh. Anyway, uh, with all that in mind, guys, I hope you have a good rest of your weekend. If you're listening to this on Sunday, if you're listening to this on Monday or Tuesday, I hope you have a great start to your week. It's going to be kind of a lot of episodes all at once here. So I apologize to your feed. Sorry for getting this episode out so late. My life has just been topsy-turvy uh, these last couple of days and weeks. So bear with me. We'll get it back to regular schedules. Mondays, Tuesdays, or Fridays, we'll be here. So anyway, guys. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast.